2: All rise.
1: Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly.
3: Good morning and welcome to another edition of Cyberlaw Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. And thanks to the Miami Book Fair, we're continuing with our author series. And today we have Jonathan Taplin. And Jonathan has a new book out called move fast and break things and Jonathan um, is well known in the tech community and, um, and particularly in the entertainment community where he began his career and um, but he now makes his name where he is the um, Director Emeritus of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. And we're both beaming ear to ear with the, in light of the Dodgers winning the pennant last night. Although this will be aired at a later date, but Jonathan, welcome to the show.
0: Good to be here, Bennett.
3: Jonathan, as I I went through your book, it it, it seems that your book is is getting timelier and timelier. It's almost as if you know you you whether you may wonder if you should have waited another six months or so to write it because you know, this is so much developing that along the lines of what you wrote.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I I think I've seen this coming for a while, and it's certainly good to see that there is a larger reception for the message that I'm putting out uh, today than there was five months ago. Um, Partially that's because, obviously, all these revelations about how Facebook and Google were used, by the Russians in the election, but I think there's other larger questions about antitrust and regulation that are also getting to be um, almost common wisdom.
3: Now, when I first, I've only met you maybe once or twice, when I first met you, it was in 2012 at the Tech Policy Summit in Napa Valley. And, and there you uh, we got in a debate with um, Mike Masnick on kind of digital copyright issues. And, and that's you know that seems to be a, a part of what your book is, but it's, your book is a lot more. And so I'm wondering, at what point did you decide to write this book? What was the trigger that really made you want to write this out?
0: Well, as you alluded to, I started my career in the music business working for Bob Dylan and the band as a tour manager. And the band was what I call middle-class musicians. They didn't sell millions of copies, but they sold hundreds of thousands of copies and made a very good living as musicians through the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s when the CD was reissued. All their music came out again because it was music that that really lasted, that held up. And in 2000, Napster arrived. uh, And in 2000, Levon Helm, who was the lead singer and the drummer for the band, got throat cancer. And those two things came together to kind of make his life hell, because the royalties that he had been receiving from his recordings just stopped because it was all available for free online, um, and on pirate sites. And so he hardly had enough money to pay for his healthcare. And that seemed to me to be incredibly unfair. And in 2005, as he was still suffering, I could go on YouTube and see bits of streams of his content being viewed or listened to. And none of that money was flowing to him. And so I began to look at what had happened. How had it been that the big tech platforms like Google, YouTube, Facebook had come to dominate the internet, which was when it really started a very decentralized notion. The whole idea was to create a decentralized network. And yet by the 2000, Google, Amazon and Facebook had come to totally dominate the internet. Uh, last year, eighty-eight percent of all advertising online went to either a Google company or a or a Facebook company, and that to me seemed to be the heart of the problem. And
3: is that what is that what kind of pushed you to say you know I, I have to write something?
0: Yeah, because you know where Google's revenues were growing. a year, the revenues to music companies or the revenues to newspaper companies or the revenues to book writers were declining 60 and 70%. And that just meant that there was a wholesale reallocation of revenue from people who made content to people who own these monopoly platforms. It wasn't that people stopped reading books or listening to music or watching movies or reading newspapers. It's just that all the money was being creamed off the top by Google, Facebook and Amazon.
3: And so there's several kind of pillars in your book. I mean, one is the initial part which you just talked about, you know, on the copyright issue and, you know, the fact that creators just aren't aren't getting a fair deal. Uh, under the new streaming platforms. Um, but there's also a, a big point in your book is this kind of this uh, libertarian ethos. And, and in fact, it's interesting that you, your title, Move Fast and Break Things, because just, um, I think it was last week, and um, it form, um, Frida Kappel or Klein, um, spoke out about that, that very ethos, the move fast and break things ethos, and said that we, we kind of Silicon Valley is in a moral crisis.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, when I looked at what happened from the beginnings of the internet in the late 60s, which was this very kind of idealistic, utopian view that we could have this totally decentralized network where everybody could participate, but what happened was in the late 80s, a group of libertarians, including Peter Thiel, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, rose up and understood that the internet could actually be a winner-takes-all business because the network effect, that is the fact that if I'm on Facebook and my two billion other people are on Facebook, I have no need for a second social network. If I have Google and uh, 2 billion other people are using Google, there's no need for a second search engine. Uh, If I have Amazon e-commerce, there is no need for a second uh, e-commerce platform because Amazon sells me everything. And that notion of winner takes all economics completely revolutionized. And it came out of Teal and Page's belief that four pillars of that had to happen. One, that there should be no regulation of the internet. And for 30 years, that's been true. Two, that there should be no taxes on the internet. So Jeff Bezos was able to sell books with no sales taxes and put 4,000 independent bookstores out of business because they had to pay Eight percent sales tax.
3: Well, that was due to the Supreme Court decision on interstate sales.
0: No, it was due to a notion that the internet should not have be taxed. That as long as you didn't have a warehouse or a a facility of business in Florida, you were Amazon. You could you could sell books to Florida without paying any sales tax. Um. And then finally, the Internet should not have any copyright laws. And, you know, we've talked about YouTube, but essentially if you think about what YouTube does to the music business, they say basically, look, your music is going to be on YouTube whether you want it to or not. The only decision you have to make is are you, do you want some advertising money from YouTube or not? And if you do... You have to sign what they call a license, which is basically an extortion racket uh, to legalize something in which there is no willing buyer and willing seller. It's just saying you can file a take on YouTube to get your song off of YouTube, but it'll go back up the next day from a different user. Uh, so it's, it's a useless game of whack-a-mole. But the music business spends millions every year playing, but at the end of the day, it's it's extortion.
3: Right. Let me let me ask you just drill down on that one a little bit. I actually went on YouTube and I and I typed in the Last Waltz and um, for just to see what came up, and and I was surprised. And the and for listeners, Last Waltz was the. The concert film, which Jonathan, I guess you produced that, correct? Yes. Um, of the the last concert um, of the band, um, with a lot of you know famous guest appearances. That was and that was directed by Martin Scorsese, and I went back to that, and I was surprised to 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 see there were a number of uh, it was up there. You know, there were a number of uh, clips from it and i, I was I was assuming that the people who posted it had some connection to the film or not, but few of them, if any, did. And what struck me is I, I sometimes use a service called Animoto, which it's, it's a you know we put together, helps you put together videos and you can add music to it that's already licensed. And um every time I load that on on YouTube, i get a copyright notice that um even though i've, I've licensed this product from Animoto and the, the song with it um it, it automatically triggers something within a matter of minutes and and you know and youtube is always promoting this that we have this back end we're LinkedIn, and we can flag this stuff and, and so why isn't the, the you know for example the band contact being flagged
0: well the problem is not the flagging is, I mean, you know, they've Warner Brothers or United Artists have filed numerous takedown notices. Mm-hmm. It's just that at a certain point you give up because it gets taken down for a day or two and then goes right back up because YouTube and Facebook live under what's called safe harbor law. Which
3: right. is Under the Digital, the Millennium, digital Copyright Millennium
0: Copyright Act. Act. And so no one can actually sue YouTube or Facebook for putting them up, so essentially you're you're left to uh, combating individual users that put them up. I mean, but that is a big, it's a big lie. I mean, obviously you notice there's no pornography on YouTube or Facebook. They're very good at blocking porn because they think their advertisers would be offended, right? But they don't care about blocking. Musicians' songs that don't want that out there, and and they don't even care about blocking ISIS instructional videos on how to commit jihad. And
3: they and so you you want we'll get you would like to see the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which just for listeners, it doesn't give them total immunity. They basically you have to have a procedure where um, you have a where and. A copyright holder can submit a notice saying, this is my content, please take it down. And they have to um, act on that expeditiously. And As long as they do that, they're immune. And But I think Jonathan's point is that, well, that just puts us in a constant state of whack-a-mole, right?
0: Right, exactly. And,
3: and so what would you, what would you want the, the safe harbor to be? if it,
0: I would like there to be uh, what people have called a takedown stay down law. So if I owned a copyright and I filed a takedown notice to Google, it would then be Google's responsibility to keep it off the platform. Now, they're very capable of doing that because, as you pointed out, they have a content ID system that identifies a piece of music within three seconds. Right. And then can basically stop it. So um, what I'd like them to, to do is block it on the upload side, not have the company having to constantly police YouTube or Facebook um, on once it's already on the platform.
3: And how viable do you think that is? And politically today.
0: Well, technologically it's totally viable. As I pointed out, they <laughs> they 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 do it for pornography, right? Right. They, right. they don't they, even let porn get blocked. Get it up
3: can be it. it can be done.
0: Uh, so then the question is, how powerful is Google's lobby in Congress? And I would submit to you it's probably pretty powerful. I mean Look at what's happening today with this SESTA law, which is a, an attempt to modify the safe harbor only in the area of child sex trafficking. Right. And here is Google fighting it like crazy. They want the right to be able to link to any si- child sex trafficking site and not have to face any liability.
3: I think they might phrase it differently. I think they were—they're just concerned about slippery slopes, <laughs> and once you open Section Two Thirty.
0: Well, that may be true, but it's still pretty unseemly that they are deploying their shills, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, to fight this tooth and nail.
3: And. So that that's one pillar of you, you that you raise. And the, in the right. second pillar that you raise, which is kind of interesting, since you know I've been spending you know, since 1999, I've been working in technology, and my early part of my career, however, was in any trust. And you know, who'd have thought that this would issue would become sexy again? <laughs> and, and, and so you know, I see that that's a central part of what, what you're trying to address. And in fact, you, you make some good points about how antitrust actually led to the innovation that we see in um, Silicon Valley and because right. of the regulation of, you know, the um, AT&T and the yeah. Ma Bell. And, um, and so it seems to be there's this revival of discussion of antitrust by people, you know, you and I, I've heard you cite Matt Stoller and I've seen some of his work on this. And then all of a sudden, antitrust is, is sexy again. And, and it's interesting because I also saw something today. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's um, it was in the Cook Political Report, cited it. And um, it's from Melman, um, Bruce Melman and of the, the Melman lobbying firm in DC, who actually did a really interesting PowerPoint that we are possibly in a second Gilded Age. And what could that mean? And since we know the first Gilded Era, kind of not only did it give us beautiful mansions in Newport, but um, it also led to the Progressive Era in response.
0: Yeah. Well, look, let's let's take this into two parts. First is, you know, the Silicon Valley people want us to believe that antitrust regulation inhibits innovation. Um, so... I would say that that's totally untrue. So if you look at the history of, of antitrust and technology, in 1956, the uh, Justice Department signed a consent decree with AT&T, which was at that time the monopoly phone company. Most of your users probably don't understand that there was a single phone company in the fifties. and in return for allowing them to stay the monopoly, AT&T's subsidiary, Bell Labs, which was their research and development laboratory, had to license every single patent that they owned for free to any American company. So they happened to own the patent for the transistor, among other things, as well as the laser the cellular system, the satellite, and many other technology pieces, which were the core basis of, of Silicon Valley. So out of those three patents came lots of new companies, Texas Instruments, Motorola, Hewlett Packard, uh, ComSat, uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, and eventually Intel. And those all were born from the pre- free patents that they got from Bell Labs. So that was the first push of Silicon Valley. Then 20 years later, IBM had a lock on the mainframe business and you had to use both IBM's hardware and IBM software on that those platforms and the government sued IBM and that went on for 13 years. And eventually they said you had to you had to unbundle these things I had I had to be able to get different software and and different hardware, and even though IBM won that suit, the government IBM eventually relented and agreed to unbundle software from hardware. And so when they started to design the personal computer, they let two young kids from Seattle design the software, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, which then created Microsoft. Uh, then 20 years later, it was so big that Microsoft insisted that you use their browser and search engine, Internet Explorer, if you were to use a PC. Right. The government sued them. That The government won, and that allowed Google to enter the market big time with both the browser and a search engine, and the rest is history. So my theory is, that antitrust actually leads to innovation and new companies. And so that's what's needed. Because what's happening right now is there is a lack of innovation in new companies. Look at what happened to Snapchat. So Snapchat designs really interesting new services called Snapchat Stories, where you can draw on the video and you can annotate it and do all sorts of things. They begin to get traction. They get 100 million users. Facebook comes to them and offers to buy them for $3 billion. They turn Facebook down. And Facebook basically says, you're going to regret this. And Facebook then copies everything Snapchat does. They don't even bother to change the name. So they call it Instagram stories or WhatsApp stories or Facebook stories. And Snapchat goes public at $28 a share. And I think the stock is somewhere around $13 a share today. Uh, Advertisers are fleeing Snapchat, going to Facebook's version of their thing. And so this is what happens when you have monopolies.
3: But, you know, as the antitrust the lawyer me recalls, that one thing you look at in assessing monopolies is possible ease of entry. And or you know, the ability of new technology to you know, create a new competitor. And, and I noticed that what we're talking about today and you know, the, the, the demons you're citing are not MySpace, Yahoo, um, you know, some other companies that you know one point were dominant but no longer are in, in the relatively brief internet era.
0: Yeah, but imagine if I came to you Bennett and said I want you to invest half your life savings in a startup to take on Google in the search advertising space you would throw me out of the room
3: or that's what you're smoking but yeah
0: <laughs> more or less right <laughs> uh, so I mean look the kids at Snapchat thought look we can we can beat Facebook we have better ideas we have more imagination We have and it wasn't true um, so I mean, I would, you know, Google wants you to pretend like, as Eric Schmidt constantly says, competition is just a click away. It's not true. And we've entered a new era where if you combine search and artificial intelligence, these become virtuous circles, whether it's Facebook, Google, or Amazon. They have all the data. They get more data, they improve their services, they hire the best artificial intelligence scientists, and it just gets better and better and better. And their products are dynamically uh, almost impossible to compete with.
3: Well, one thing we all have to compete with, though, is the need for revenue. And uh, we're going to take a short break so we can have our advertisers give their say. We'll be back after these messages with Jonathan Taplin. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only at webmasterradio.fm.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors
2: book lovers, and hundreds of compelling contemporary authors are heading to Miami for the 34th Annual Miami Book Fair, Friday, November 17th through Sunday, November 19th. See in person amazing authors, including Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Al Franken, Russell Banks, Michael Eric Dyson, Armistead Malpin, Angela J. Davis, Scott Turow, Walter Isaacson, and many more. The 34th Annual Miami Book Fair. For more information, visit miamibookfair.com.
1: TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
3: And we're back, and we're talking to Jonathan Taplin. He is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy – and um which actually you can say in one tweet Twitter tweet. Um <laughs> the, the key to having a, a, a title under 144 characters. So Jonathan, it we talked a little bit about the this whole antitrust issue that's going on, the copyright issue, and it it seems that um the battlefield for this isn't Capitol Hill these days, but possibly Brussels. And and so I'm wondering. To what extent uh, you, have you been talking about this these issues overseas, and, and are you getting a different reception?
0: Uh, well, I, I I get a more open reception in in Europe for sure, but I think it's really because you're an antitrust scholar. I can get a little geeky with you. I think <laughs> it's really uh, it's really a matter of interpretation. It's not that our laws are outmoded. Uh, The Sherman Act and the Clayton Act are both perfectly sufficient to discipline these things. It's just that in the 1980s, uh, Justice Robert Bork, who was a professor at, at Yale, published a book called The Antitrust Paradox, which posited that the only thing that mattered in antitrust looking at a merger was would prices go up? Right. Uh, He called it consumer welfare. And so under his interpretation of the antitrust laws, Amazon could potentially become the only retailer in America because they have so much market power as a middleman that they can constantly depress prices from producers. We've seen this in the book business. They are constantly pushing book publishers to lower prices. Now you could say well that's good for consumers, but what it's bad for is authors, publishing companies, and all the other aspects of the economy. So essentially what you're getting to, and we will see this played out in the grocery business. Amazon will begin to be in to push prices lower. Farmers will get less money and and all of this will eventually redound to Amazon's profit participation and profit profile rather than anybody else's. So the problem is that the Europeans take a much more Brandeisian point of view, and that's from Justice Brandeis, who really believed that the role of antitrust was to maintain a competitive playing field, which meant that there needed to be more players And that itself would be self-corrective because it meant that you didn't have to have the government regulating a monopoly all the time because it would be self-regulating, because the monopoly would have to compete against many other players. So Google and Facebook could not take the outsized rents they get from selling advertising if there were more players in in the field. It's just that simple.
3: And but what's going on now? And I, I think you know, what is about to or what may happen in Europe? I think you know you make an argument should have happened or should happen in the United States, but you know Google Google and others just had you know, the political clout to, to prevent it from happening. But we're we're starting to see happen in Europe is one is antitrust enforcement against Google and others. Um, in Europe and um, you know, Google's facing record fines and they have multiple EU investigations going on. So that's one. You're also seeing a focus on privacy and we really haven't talked about that yet, but that seems right. to be a core part of one of your objections is that um, in driving prices down, You know, the one thing that becomes the profit center is the um, in making data the, the commodity it is today. Right, and, and so what we're really talking about is a data economy, and the the EU is left less comfortable with that than we are over here, partly for historical reasons, right? Um, you know, particularly with you know in Germany, and, and so there's that going on. There's also, I think, a certain I I, I hate to say, but maybe like a, a nationalist um, point of view, and that I think the EU feels they maybe got into um, the internet. Um, late to the game in terms of establishing their presence and I I'm, I'm sure there's it might be a little bit of parochialism about this but then finally I also see an element of you know their view on copyright is is a little um closer to yours than maybe it is on Washington in Capitol Hill and um, you, you see the, the publishers, newspaper publishers in Germany and some other places, really kind of just chagrined about how their content is being distributed and monetized without them getting any benefit for it. And so I see this confluence of things coming together, and it all seems to be bubbling in in Europe and, and likely to have some um, result in the next 12 months.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, so the EU looked at the facts around uh, of what maybe could be called a tying case, in which Google was advantaging its consumer help services over those of Yelp and lots of other companies. Um, and the, the FTC had looked at those same facts. The FTC staff had reached the same conclusions that the Europeans had, but the politicians, especially the Obama administration, overrode the staff recommendations and Google got away with not having any fines in the U.S. In the Europe, they have a $2.7 billion fine on that kind of case. So the notion that you can be both the pipe, that is the search engine, and the provider of content is problematic, obviously. Uh, in, in almost any industry. So will you always advantage your own stuff? Will, as Amazon gets much deeper into making content, will they push their TV shows over other people who are trying to show sell their shows on Amazon Prime? Of course they will. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect of privacy, I think, is something that the Europeans, as you well pointed out, have been aware of this for years. Angela Miracle grew up in eastern German, Germany. The Stasi was probably looking at her library card records uh, from since she was probably a teenager. Uh, she understands the problem of having uh, your private data uh, in the hands of large companies and eventually in the hands of governments as the NSA investigation proved because when the government wanted to go after all everybody's data, they only had to go to Google and Facebook to get most of it. Um, Third, it does seem to me that privacy is something that we're beginning to become aware of in the United States. Uh, I was recently with the people at Consumer Reports who said, you know, you think that you're auto insurance rates are set by how well you drive, but that's not true. They're set by where you drive and where you park your car. So I was for many years a professor at the university of Southern California, which is housed in what is considered a dicey neighborhood by all state auto insurance. Right? Right. So My auto insurance rates are higher than my wife's who doesn't drive down to USC every day. Um, so
3: and are your are your just out of curiosity, you don't have to disclose this, but are you, your driving history simpler otherwise? Yes. Okay.
0: So uh, you know where I see this going is what's happening in China. So Alibaba has a service in China called Sesame Social Credit. So what it does is takes your credit report how well you repay your bank loans or your credit cards, and overlays it with your social media history, worked through an artificial intelligence algorithm. So if, for instance, you happen to play video games for five hours yesterday, you would be considered a slacker by Sesame Social Credit, and your social credit score would go down. If you posted something on WeChat that was... Uh, against the Chinese government, your social credit score would go down. If you happened to cross the street in Shanghai in the middle of the block and were caught on camera by one of the Byukurna's facial recognition cameras that are everywhere in Shanghai, your social credit score would go down. Now, you'd think that would be something that most people would stay away from completely. Right. There are t- 200 million people on sesame social credit and people are using their good social credit scores on their dating apps to prove that they're patriotic marriageable citizens to the number you know as you well know the number of men to women in China is way out of whack right so it's it's hard because to get married one
3: because of the one-child policy for yeah all that so, for a so generation at least
0: young men are are advertising themselves as being young patriotic uh, you know conforming citizens and good marriage partners
3: that's interesting I mean I hear that and I'm just waiting for the words we've always been at war with Oceana um, right you know it, it's very troubling yeah. I mean, that's China, but you're, I mean... Well, it could happen from,
0: here easily. Right, because
3: the, the all-state Facebook, examples,
0: yeah. Face, Facebook could do that in a, in a heartbeat. And by the way, the Chinese government is encouraging every citizen to get on Sesame Social Credit.
3: That's, that's a very interesting. I mean, and right now, actually, we, as we speak, China is having its... You know, Every five years, they have their annual their party congress, right. and that's that's going on right now. And they're they're centralizing power even more. Now, um, the the last kind of pillar I, of your thesis here in this "Move Fast and Break Things" book is, is stems from the influence. On politics and and right. hence the subtitle of how you know Facebook, Google, and Amazon corner the culture and are undermining democracy. Um, wh- explain how how you think they're undermining democracy and and I think obviously that people can kind of get it pretty quickly in light of the revelations of the past three weeks.
0: Right. So this goes back to our earlier discussion about safe harbor. Because essentially these platforms, whether it's Google, YouTube, uh, Facebook, are saying that we have no control over the content on these platforms. Um, so essentially, what that allows is any bad actor to use these platforms for propaganda, fake news, whatever. So whether it doesn't even matter to me whether it's. Steve Bannon, Cambridge Analytica, or the Russians that are posting this content. But I was in Las Vegas last week giving a speech, and the kids at at UNLV said to me, you can't believe the amount of rumors and fake news that came out of the shooting incident. Within an hour of the incident, that was on the top of my YouTube feed, on the top of my Facebook feed, of who did it, all of which was phony. No, you know, and, and so the question becomes if somebody posts the Pope endorses Donald Trump, would it not be possible for Facebook to check that against a known database of facts and know that the Pope did not endorse Donald Trump? And filter that in the same way they filter porn. Um, this is a question I need to pose. Secondly, yeah, the idea of political advertising. Unlike television or newspapers, nobody has to say who paid for the ads online. And so it was possible for the Chinese, I mean for the Russians, to post hundreds of thousands of dollars of ads on these platforms, which were basically meant to sow social chaos, to pit black people against white people, to put, you know, everybody think that Hillary was for the Muslims takeover of America and Sharia law, and which is nonsense. But they could post them and basically because from Facebook's point of view, a click on a piece of Phony data is just as worthwhile to them economically as a click on a piece of truth. They didn't care. And you watch. They will fight any attempts to regulate them on this over the next six to nine months. It's going to be an epic battle. I promise you.
3: Oh, it's, it's already happening. Twitter and Facebook are ramping up their um, the Washington offices. Right. And, you know, so you, I've seen notices, you know, they're hiring. Yeah. Public up. And um, so, yeah, I mean, this will be uh, a, a pitch battle. And there, a bill was introduced yesterday in both the House and the Senate to address some of this in terms of, you know, truth in, um, online, in online political ads and to require disclosures. And so, you know, granted that we don't know, um, it only has three uh, well, it has three prominent senators. I, you know, Senator yeah. John McCain, John Warner, who's, uh, you know, uh, comes from the communications industry, was a cable executive, and um, Amy Knockbler. But um, I don't know who the sponsors are in the House, but it, it definitely is going to be a subject of intense debate, particularly as Facebook and Twitter and Google go before the Senate Intelligence Committee um, at the same time.
0: You notice. They sent their general counsels to testify instead of their CEOs because the general counsel will just fudge everything. That's that's what you learn in law school: how to fudge <laughs> uh, and and will you know uh, not basically come to any conclusion whatsoever out of these hearings until we get the CEOs of these companies in front of Congress to tell us what they're going to do to support democracy instead of undermine democracy, nothing is gonna really get done.
3: There is also one other notion that I've been playing with, and then I, I didn't necessarily see you enunciated in your book, I, I've seen you talk about it somewhat, um, is we, we have a rise of, in essence, corporate nation states. You, right. I've, I've heard you talk about you know the, the amount of money offshore um, by Apple and others, right? And, and which, which I think in Apple's case is, is greater than the GDP of many countries even. And yes. um, the notion that we have American companies or French companies or whatever, and you know, the whole idea, if you think back to World War II where, where GM and Ford shift their entire domestic production to military purpose, um, the, the idea that, that that even happening today is, is kind of hard to fathom. And that um, this the expectation that they act like corporate citizens for a country that they've, they've now transcended is, is somewhat um, maybe not realistic.
0: Well, look, this is the, probably the, the biggest question we're going to have to face, which is. The people that run these companies have a very clear idea where they want to go with the world. And you know as artificial intelligence and robotics become more and more a part of their plans, they're going to execute on these things. We don't have a vote anymore. Nobody voted on the idea of the autonomous car and yet Mark Andreessen said at a recent conference I was at that within 10 years The whole long-haul trucking business of America will be automated. The the, the trucks will be autonomous. Um, When I asked him, what would you do with the 5 million people, middle-class, working-class citizens who are employed in that business, he said, that's not my problem. That's a politician's problem. And yet, Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, says, this is not an issue that will arise for 100 years. He said this idea that artificial intelligence or robotics are going to replace a large number of citizens working is a fantasy. So somebody is wrong. And my guess is that it's Steve Mnuchin. So if, if Andrzejczyn is saying it's a politician's problem, and yet the politicians are have got their head in the sand, then we're going to have a Blade Runner-like chaos in the next 20 to 25 years.
3: Well, um, I would correct you on one point. I think if you polled anyone who's ever driven with me, they would vote in favor of self-driving cars. <laughs> but um, we we have to take uh, one last break, but when we come back, we'll be wrapping up with Jonathan Taplin and Move Fast and Break Things. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
2: Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. Through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Email sales at webmasterradio.fm today and get your message delivered now. Webmasterradio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster webmasterradio.fm.
3: And we're back, and we're talking to Jonathan Taplin, author of Move Fast and Break Things. Jonathan, what has been one of the su- more surprising responses you've received to this book?
0: Well, the thing that encourages me is that there is a genuine resistance building. Um to these platforms. When I first published the book five months ago, it was uh, not widely thought that this was a doable, to take on these companies was doable. Uh, But I think the combination of the revelations about the election, um, the questions about privacy and other things are beginning to get citizens to think that maybe they do have a say in this process. I use the term techno-determinism, which is the notion that these geniuses at Facebook, Google and Amazon uh, who are so rich have the right to just determine where the world is going. And I think for the first time in a long time, people are beginning to say, no, we have a vote in this and that's important.
3: And I think if you pile on this kind of perfect storm scenario, you know, with w- terms of what's going on with this election and, you know, the whole investigation into election and the role that Facebook, especially, but Google as well and other Twitter and other platforms played. Um, and then you throw on top of that Equifax. Yep. You know, and here you have two, you know, a, Aside from Equifax, we're talking about Google and Facebook, companies that have huge amounts of data with us. And what could possibly go wrong with that? And then, you know, <laughs> Equifax says, here, hold my beer. And more or less, it exp- demonstrates what can go wrong with that. Right. And, right. and so there's you, you so many different possible reactions you know, one could be a consumer's loss of confidence in the platforms entirely, in the Internet entirely, which I don't see happening, but, but could be you know, cause disruption. But the other is people actually wanting to make sure that they live in a secure world and they do have certain privacy rights. And um, that's, that remains to be seen because they haven't been vocal about that to date, at least not in the United States.
0: Things could change quickly. This battle is just beginning, and I think there's a there's a better than fifty fifty chance that these companies are brought under some form of regulation in the next five years.
3: Now, you, you you've cited um, also people who t- take breaks from social media um, as as somewhat of a good practice, and you're actually one of our earliest shows. We had a high school classmate of mine. Bill Powers, who wrote a book on Hamlet's Blackberry and on the role of um, technology and, and how it, it can overtake our lives, and and he and his family actually have done, um, cyber sabbaths on and the week, yeah. you know. And um, do you see that as being part of the solution at all?
0: Well, I think I think it's a a little bit of a solution, but but look, it's almost impossible to avoid. Google, and Amazon uh, in in our world. Right. I mean, there just aren't any other tools. So it's, I don't think citizens trying to say, well, I'm going to use DuckDuckGo or something is going to be a, a solution. I think right. it's, it's really more a matter of, okay, if these are natural monopolies, then what role does the government play? Because there is not a market solution to this problem
3: and how and i asked bill powers this, and i was surprised at how receptive they w- silicon valley was to his message how, what has been your reaction with silicon valley in terms of your book
0: um silence they don't want to engage i i i have you know i've been you know fox news invited them on to debate me uh you know nbc uh, lots of opportunities for them to debate and they don't want to have a debate they just want to basically ignore it
3: interesting it just seems like maybe this is the timing i mean this
0: is well they may co- have to they may yeah. have to at some point for now they just want to you know have go on PR tours you know I'm I'm Mark Zuckerberg I'm just like you I'm going to eat with the farmers in Iowa
3: and is there a way to innovate out of this or is this really going to require you know major policy decisions in in Washington and Brussels and
0: elsewhere well i think i think you know if if for instance you you broke up some of these companies uh then there would be probably some pretty interesting innovation if well, if you if YouTube had to compete with Google if Instagram had to compete with Facebook if if uh, you know whatsapp had to compete with Instagram there might be a different ball game
3: and and that would be one example any other how else would you break up Google
0: make them sell double click
3: interesting I used to be in-house at a double-click competitor <laughs> uh, and, and uh, we saw Microsoft buy a Quantif, one of our other competitors and then double bought a Google bought by Google and um, we we were the third the third largest and on the outside looking in but um, so you you would break that up because of the ad serving platform
0: yeah. I make Google have to build its own and have a a competitor that service the rest of the industry.
3: And if you, what would be the one thing, if you, if one of your prescriptions from your book could be implemented, what would be the one you would most like to see?
0: Well, the the near term one I'd like to see is the takedown stay down.
3: The DMCA.
0: Yeah, that would, that would change everything as far as the content business. The you, copyright business quite radically.
3: Now you mentioned the the, the firing of the registrar of copyrights. Right. Um, promptly after she had um, had suggested this, and um, I actually I met with her uh, a little bit before then. Where, where this issue was not raised. But you know, she already did have some unpopularity on Capitol Hill partly because she was trying to move the the registrar's office out of the Library of Congress, which is something I, I still can't understand why it is there. But, um, and that was, people saw her as trying to create her own fiefdom. So she did have some unpopularity on Capitol Hill. But you, you, think, you're, you think she was fired mainly because of that move? Totally. Interesting. Totally.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm not the only one. Wall Street Journal wrote about this extensively. This is just a a Google power move. It's no different from, you know, what happened to Barry Lynn and Matt Stoller. Right. You know, and
3: that is that is interesting because yeah, we've had New America. We've we've actually had a number of guests with New American Foundation, and I (laughs) I knew Barry Lynn. that, That was Matt Stoller, one of the people who was forced out. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, Matt, and, and I guess that would make sense as Matt has been very outspoken on yeah. you know the need to apply any you know any trust to the right the technology companies, yeah, wow, And what we're talking about for our listeners was there was somewhat of a a to do um I guess about six weeks ago when um it turns out that a person at the Barry Lim was what the executive director or a prominent yep. member of the New American Foundation who we've had several of the guests on our show and um, he'd been spoken out about the I guess it was the EU um, exactly ...antitrust sanctions against Google and he was forced out and because it, Google a,
0: because Google was the main financier of New America Foundation
3: And in the process it came out that Google, has played a role with a number of think tanks and they had actually been steering some of the you know, New England accent apology. Um, have been steering some of the, um, studies in, in, in ways that were favorable to Google.
0: Yes, totally.
3: So Jonathan, we only have a uh, two minutes left and the time left. If people want to, um, well, first of all, if people want to learn more about you, this you and, and how to follow you, what's the best way to do so?
0: So, uh, my website is johntaplin.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at @jonathantaplin And I have a Facebook public page, Jonathan Taplin.
3: And more importantly, you'll be appearing at the Miami Book Fair on the panel Good Tech, Bad Tech. And that will be on Saturday, November 18th at 12 p.m. in room 2106 of Building 2. That sounds like such a distinctive building, building too. Um, so have a great time in Miami. and okay. uh, And um, feel free, if you have a, a book tour scheduled um, you want us to add to the show notes, we're happy to do that. And um, But thank you again for joining us. It's been a it pleasure a great talking talk. to you. And, um, and good luck in Miami. And everyone, check out Jonathan Taplin, Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Corner Culture and Undermine Democracy. Thanks again, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. So that, that concludes our second segment of the Miami Book First series. And, um, but we'll be back next week with another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. You can follow this show and the information on today's show on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. Radio. Thanks again to Jonathan and see you next week. Goodbye.
2: The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.